Hi, this is Spencer Blackaller from War of Love. And um, today on my show, I'm excited to announce Rob Green, who is a yoga rehabilitation teacher that specializes in holistic ways of approaching P PTSD. After serving as a US Navy veteran for six years, he has had a successful career in tech brokering, which forced him to face the trauma from early childhood and his military service. So he was diagnosed with PTSD eight years later after leaving the military and three suicide attempts. He wanted to live life more simply, so he created a smaller eco-village and lived off-grid for a few years, improving his own understanding of mental health for experimenting with DMT and other psychedelics. After a few years, he ventured into India and studied yoga and meditation, and then on to China where he studied martial arts and now spends his time trying to share what he's learned in the best way they can to help others suffering with PTSD. Rob, it's uh, great to have you here. Um, a true warrior, in my opinion, on the war of love. So uh, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be on and be able to talk to you and spread this message. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so when, when I sent through my pre-interview questions, you sent back these beautiful voice messages of, um, and you just talk so openly and authentically about um, all this kind of stuff, which is, which is a real inspiration. Um, and it, in my opinion, it was quite a rap sheet, really, of, of trauma and transformation that you've, that you've gone through. So um, um, really, I just thought, let's just start at the beginning. And, and I was quite interested in uh, just telling me about your childhood and how that influenced you in joining the military. Uh, and let's go from there. Um... I mean, my childhood is nothing short of a train wreck, I guess. Um, my mother got cancer when I was around two and a half. I remember I was going to doctor visits with her. She started losing her hair, went to chemo. Cancer spread from her breast to her brain. She died in 1987 on Christmas Day, and I had to witness that. Then afterwards, my parents had already been divorced, so my father and my stepmother took me on. And my father had quite a few substance abuse issues, but... Uh, violent behaviors. My stepmother was also a very toxic person in a lot of ways because of her own unaddressed trauma. So I grew up kind of in, uh, in the middle of a lot of different situations where I'm the kid from another marriage of a woman who died. Now I'm kind of left over. And there's a lot of things that I went through in childhood to set the stage for a lot of negative self-beliefs and traumatic experiences kind of shaping my mind into this very negative narrative, a negative picture of life. So basically, where I grew up in, uh, I grew up in New Mexico when I was uh, 14. I moved to Florida to be near some of my other immediate family. And the situation just got so bad at home that I just wanted to get as far away from home as I possibly could. Uh, my parents were very abusive when I was, yeah, I was 16 years old. They made me move into the garage and they gave my room to another because they took on foster kids. So there was other children that weren't even theirs and they were living in my room and I was kicked out in the garage and my stepmother told me it's one step closer to getting you out of our lives. So I always had this kind of negative attitude, like I wasn't wanted, I wasn't loved and I wasn't worthy of love. And so for me, coming from a dysfunctional, broken family that's kind of low income, you know, uh, minority and a mixed race kind of perspective, the, the military was an ultimate way out because they could ship me all the way across the world and I would never have to go back home if I didn't want to. So that's what I did. At 18, I joined the U.S. Navy. I shipped off to boot camp. Then after that, I, was, then I went to tech training school in Texas. Then my first assignment was on board the U.S.S. Nashville in 2002, December. That's when that all started. But 
for the purpose of your message and your platform, I guess the beginning parts of my foundation in life were all set against feeling the feeling of self-love, feeling the feeling of acceptance, feeling the feeling of worthiness. And the place where I was supposed to feel safe and home and welcomed was exactly the opposite. That's a place I wanted to get away from the most. So I look at it like a blessing, actually. Now, it's, it might be a crazy thing to say, but what it did is it actually caused me to create my own autonomy and sever the dependence of having to always seek approval from family, almost a little bit too much, because there was a period of around eight years I didn't see or talk to anyone from my family, I was just doing my own thing. And I've recently reconnected to them, but when you don't start your life in that positive cocoon of love and you know what everyone is normally used to, you have to basically, in order to find value, you have to seek it outside yourself. So this is what propelled me in my journey to want to explore other cultures, to travel the world. I've traveled to around 36 countries. I've lived in around four different countries for more than uh, three or four years at a time. So I travel all the time, and I'm so fascinated by the culture. So that kind of set the stage for it. You know, going through it at the time was, was a bit terrible, and there's a lot of issues I had to fix in myself with that. But... I think if you look at the overall journey of what it's about, you know, it did make me an explorer, a traveler, and an independent person. Yeah, so I wow. Guess that's the right thing in a nutshell. Wow, wow, that's great. I mean, yeah, I can I certainly resonate with a lot of that. Um I think yeah, I think a lot of people will. Um so to, to talk a bit about your experiences in the military and, and did how they how they helped your childhood experiences and also how they hindered them maybe and or or added to them um maybe well i think for the united states i mean right now it's a totally different time in the year 2020 it's a lot different than 2002 when i went in but basically there was a i went in the year after the september 11th attacks when there was a strong sense of nationalism a strong sense of wanting to get back at the bad guys. You know, there's a lot of people wanting to join the military so they could go defend America and drink out all that Kool-Aid down and all that kind of stuff. But um, for me, going into the military, what it really did is that I went through a series of emotional programming. They have, they have it down to science. They're the world's top experts in emotional programming where they basically take you and they program you to be afraid of your own emotions. So vulnerability is something that's not welcome whatsoever. Wow. Like if you have a problem and you need to talk to someone, the answer is suck it the fuck up, no one cares, get back to work. Like wow. there's no taking a day off because you don't feel like getting to work, there's no time for excuses, there's, that doesn't exist. When you have a complaint about something and you're a junior enlisted ranking person, you suck it the fuck up, shut up and do your job. And that's the answer. And they even make fun of you. So I remember when I was deployed, the first deployment, we were in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. So that was sending so combat support ops into Afghanistan. That time, my stepmother, I did have a very dysfunctional relationship with her, but she was still the only mother I knew. So I still obviously had a positive emotional attachment to her you know, in a way as well. And she died in 2003 while I was on deployment. So I got shipped over from the Middle East, in the middle of a deployment, back home for a funeral and then right back over again so by the time i left to go over uh from the montreal to come back you know, when i got back to work i was given extra tasks and assignments because i'd been on vacation mm. 
And then I was severely bullied and I was even physically assaulted a few times because these people were jealous that I had, I got to leave and they didn't. Oh, wow. The reason that my mom died. Oh, wow. So that really was a big, yeah, that was a big. Yeah. And so I think that obviously it made the childhood thing even worse because it puts you in the system of like, you can't really express how you feel. You, you're full of all of these energy, right? Like these guys in the military can do phenomenal things. Mm. Like super, you have superhuman power. Some of them they can stay awake for 36 hours and carry 179 pounds on their back and run. All this stuff is because the emotional programming and triggers, basically it takes a person and it puts them under a heavy amount of stress. You're constantly badgered. You're constantly held to a high standard of accountability. You're constantly expected to be a top performer. And it puts this high level of stress on you. But psychologically programs you to internalize all that stress and not express it. So when you go out and to do your job in the field, that's when you release all that stored emotional tension. And that's the battery power that gets you to perform. So a lot of the soldiers I was with when I was with the Marine unit, the 26MU at a Camp Lejeune, these guys love to be in the field. And they look at going into the field like a, like a video game. I get to go shoot some bad guys. Like they're playing a first-person shooter game. That's what they see it as. You know, women, children, whoever. It doesn't matter because you're, you're so wound up in that environment. When you finally get out into the field, it's woo, let loose. It's like burning stress off. So it's like a bunch of kids playing a video game, basically. So that's one of the biggest problems because years later, when you come out of the military, then you realize, like, holy shit, those are human beings. And they had lives and... I might have done, I like, might have, I did do horrible things to hurt people, but because of the programming you go through at the time, it's just, it's just as random as pushing a button on a computer. Yeah, well, it, it literally is that now, isn't it? You know, the, with the with the drones and stuff, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's quite. Yeah. Quite scary. So, I think for the time that I spent in the military, the biggest problem I developed was heavy dependence on alcohol. Um, there was two suicide attempts while I was in. The first one is getting back after a first appointment. My mother had passed away and coming back home, or not even back home, going back to where I was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia. There was none of my family. Nobody was there waiting for me to welcome me and everyone else was. You know, brothers, sisters, cousins, nobody showed up. I was there just totally alone. And I remember I had a really bad case of insomnia, so I couldn't sleep. No matter what I did, I would try to exhaust myself. I'd drink myself to oblivion. I'd spend three, four hours in the gym. I'd go run miles on end. By the time I'd fall asleep, you know, I'd be so physically and mentally exhausted. I'd fall asleep for maybe an hour, then I'd be awake again. Wow. Because I had all of this repressed emotions and a psychological mechanism that keeps them down. So they have to. So as soon as the mind kind of shuts off, that's when the emotions come back and they kind of need to be released, but you can't release them mm. in a weird, crazy way, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember the first time, it was in 2003, after we'd gotten back from deployment around the holidays, I was on patrol. And I, I don't know, it was been about six months after getting back and I was only getting maybe an hour and a half to two hours of sleep per night. Heavy alcohol dependence. My life was just basically really miserable. I just hated life. You think, oh, you're going to go serve your country and be a hero and all this, but we're actually the ones doing things to harm people. And there's 
where there are all these weapons of mass destruction that you know we're going over here to find they're they're not there yeah so all of these things started to sink in my head and i remember one night i was on patrol and i just went down to this empty space where no one was and i was staring in the mirror and i pulled my nine millimeter out of my side the side holster put it to the side of my head i was standing at attention like i was saluting myself i put my finger in the trigger cocked the safety off and i was like i don't want to be here anymore i just don't i, I don't want to live anymore this is life Fuck this i'm done and i took a deep breath in and i put my hand right on the trigger then on my left pocket my, my phone ring i had a little sprint flip phone back in like 2003 2004 those little sprint little tiny ones and so when i answered the phone there was my dad on the other line my dad said, hey, son, someone, something told me to call you right now. Are you okay? So I had my dad on one hand. Then I had a gun wow. loaded, round in the chamber, safety off, finger right on the trigger on the other. And I just stopped. I'm like, I can't do this to my dad. And that's when I put the gun away. Then I just kind of went about my business like it never even happens. And I still struggled after that. And I just, I, I, the military kind of conditions you so much where you don't want to talk about how you feel where you don't want to admit any kind of weakness because usually when you like in a normal situation, right? Let's say we're coworkers and you have a problem and say, Hey, what's wrong, Spencer? You know, you, you, you're having a bad day, buddy. What can I do to help you? Then you would say, okay, yeah, well, I'm having a problem with the missus or blah, 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 blah. In the military, when I was in, if you have a problem, you get belittled for it. Yeah. If you are having a problem about something, a lot of the times you just get belittled for it. If you're not performing at peak performance, you're showing signs of weakness, saying you're being a fucking pussy, shut the fuck up and do your job. We don't pay you to whine and complain and you get belittled for having a problem. So it makes you not want to share or be vulnerable because you fear mm. the harassment and onslaught of badgering and all the things that, that come with that. So I kept that attitude for a long time in life after the military. So I didn't want to share this with anyone. Mm. So some time went by and we went on another deployment again. We went on a deployment for what? This was in 2005. We went to Eastern Europe to take part in a series of humanitarian aid missions. Mm. And that felt kind of good. We went over to Georgia and some of the post-Soviet countries and we were relief goods. And that was kind of a cool thing to do, but I still never resolved my sleep issue. And I still just felt really miserable inside. A very dysfunctional relationship with my family. And a very, I don't know, I was in a really dark place in my life. I just totally was miserable in my life. I uh, didn't really have any friends or anyone to really talk to. I spent a lot of time alone. Uh, the people that I could talk to that I was amigo with, some of them were pretty understanding. We developed some good friendships, but as far as getting any kind of real, I guess, healing or having some kind of real authentic conversation where I felt okay to be vulnerable, I can never overcome the fear that was programmed into us not doing that. So I remember the second suicide attempt was in 2005. I was on Ambien because I finally told someone, hey, I'm having trouble sleeping. So the doctor said, just take two of these at night. And it started working out, but I developed a tolerance. And so eventually, you know, when I first started taking Ambien, I would go to like six hours, which was like, wow, that was great. You're only sleeping one to two hours and you get six. And that's amazing for the first like, you know, couple of weeks and body builds a tolerance. Then I was back to two again. So I just upped the dosage. Instead of taking two pills, I took four. But now it would kick in. And the same thing could happen. Then I was up to six pills a night. And it just wasn't really working anymore because I had so much emotional tension that's overriding the medication. So 
I remember it was after a, a night of drinking and polished off about a fifth of Jack Daniels. That was friends. We were just, you know, talking about stories from deployments, friends we knew in the Marines that got killed and just kind of reminiscing about things. Brought up a lot of negative feelings. Stopped in McDonald's and got a fish sandwich on the way home. Luckily I did because something in the fish sandwich caused me to vomit later. So I got home, then I had my bottle of ambience and I saw that I had 15 pills left. So I just took them all. And I said, I told myself, I hope I never wake up. And I remember I got really tired and fell asleep, but something with the alcohol, the fish sandwich and the pills didn't sit right in my stomach. So that all came out. And that ended up all over my floor in my room. And these little wow. white half digested balls of powder were still there. I slept until noon the next day after that, so I guess I kind of did the job, but thank God I'm still here now. So that was another attempt that happened. So I think as far as the short version of answering your question, um, the military, if you have childhood trauma, which most people that join the military in my generation usually do because they're trying to escape a negative family situation, it just kind of just really programs you to be very afraid of your own vulnerability and it further teaches you to repress your emotions. And it further teaches you to never want to admit that you have a problem even to yourself. Mm. Even though everyone else around knows you that you do, you don't want to admit it to yourself. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the biggest thing. A lot of, uh, I know veterans struggle with this. Um, men in general, we don't really like to admit our weaknesses. Especially, in, I'm assuming we're about the same age. I'm 37 now, so yeah. men in our generation, yeah, I mean, I probably think, have a hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I I resonate a lot with with what you talk about because it feels like yours is just a more exaggerated version of what a lot of, of men our age are, uh, are sort of dealing with, you know, generally from their fathers and and generally from their upbringing. You know, that that kind of you know don't talk about your feelings, don't you know, don't have you're being too deep or you know. You know, just get on with it, go to work, yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, it's the same thing, isn't it, really? It's just a, you know, uh, yeah, just a, uh, probably, um, yeah, different version, really, of the same energy. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. yeah. It's the same. It, it seems like the universe doesn't really want you to go, though, anyway. So uh, it's been. Good. I tried again in 2015, man. This, the third time was, I thought that would be the charm, but I'm still here. So. <laughs> what happened in 2015? So basically, as I kind of explained earlier, or you kind of touched on it a bit, I got yeah. out of the military in 2008. Um, I left operational duty at the end of 2005. I had about three and a half years in Japan on shore duty where I was stationed at a hospital. It was totally fun times. So I was working as a logistics manager in the hospital. That's when life got a lot easier. They're just kind of having like a nine to five expat kind of day job where you didn't have to go out and be crazy with deployments for a long time and all that. But in Japan, that's when I just kind of let loose. And I think I kind of needed that. So I find myself in Tokyo, drinking myself to oblivion every weekend. I could easily go through five to $700 a weekend just in alcohol on a regular, consistent basis. In Japan, back in what? That was from 2006, seven, and eight. Yeah. I was having the time of my life. Right? My liver wasn't probably appreciating it. And, you know, drinking, womanizing, doing. Doing things a young Westerner does in Japan back yeah. in those days. <laughs> and I kind of wanted, like, the whole idea of getting out of the military and going back to America where I didn't really have any kind of established base there where I could actually set up a life and just having it in the back of my family. It was just kind of 
was something I wasn't really wanting to do. So I remember I had a gap because I got out of the Navy and I wanted to go back to Japan to go to school. So I had a three month gap where I had to go back. So I ended up staying with my, uh, my brother-in-law and stayed a little bit with my father. And it was, just, it was the same thing from high school. Like I changed so much, but they were still the exact same, the same toxic habits, same thing. So I had a big falling out, a bunch of drama with my, my older brother and all this kind of stuff. And, I left again and I told myself I would rather die than live with my family ever again. Like if I have to choose death or going back to live in my parents' house or live with my family, I'd rather fucking die than go back to that because it's just never going to change because it's such a toxic environment and they're not growing at all. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I went to school. I got my, finished my degrees off, got a job. Just kind of letting all this childhood trauma and all these things just kind of stew inside and keeping my mind focused on being a professional because in the military, that's how you're deeply conditioned. Mm. And so that was kind of worked out kind of groovy for a few years. I was, I got a pretty good job first at a company um, in the Philippines. Because when I was, when I was in Japan and I graduated from college, the only job that I was offered was being an English teacher. I'm like, you know, I just spend all this money to learn Japanese. Why am I going to learn? Why am I going to learn this only to be an English teacher? I don't want to be an English teacher. So I ended up getting a better position and a better job as an expat in a branch company in Manila rather than in Tokyo. So I was working that job for a while. I started you know, small just as a web content consultant. So I would help translate websites and that kind of stuff. Then eventually after two years in the company, my boss had a new venture with the Japanese government to promote manufacturing technology. This started back in what, 2013, when the yen rate dropped, because mm-hmm. Japan, the Japanese government wanted to promote Japan's exports to compete with China. So we had a government contract. So my boss is like, all right, well, you speak Japanese and you know how to talk to Americans. So I need you to go help sell these Japanese technology to American and wow. foreign buyers. So I'm like, all right, that's a cool, seems like a cool gig. And that was a lot of work, you know, at that time in 2000 or early 13, I was really busy. A lot. I, there's an event that happened in my life then where it kind of really just it kind of made me face a really dark part of myself and a dark part of life um i want to say yeah in 2013 a deep dark family secret came to light wow. something my father did when 40 years ago even before i was born and it just had come to light now. And this thing is a very horrible and people act. And our, my sister is the one who told us about it. And I want to believe it's true. And I remember I confronted my dad about it. And of course, he denied it and lied. But later on, I found out that my father had been victimizing some of the foster children that were living in his house. And he'd been sexually assaulting some of the women that he worked with. And yeah, you can, I don't really need to spell it all out there, but you can kind of imagine where this is going. And... Basically, I remember in 2013, in October, there was a giant super typhoon that hit the Philippines called Yolanda. Remember that? It was like one of the biggest typhoons on record. Yeah, I think so. And so I was supposed to go home and visit my father for Christmas that year. But all of this stuff had come up, you know, all of these dirty secrets and all this these things that he'd been doing had all come up. And I was like, I'm not really wanting to spend all of my savings to go see this guy now. 
especially after all of this stuff just kind of comes up and there's a lot of people telling me all these same things that have been happening. So I decided to use that money to do a project for the typhoon survivors. So me and a couple of my friends, we got some more money together and we decided to go down to the most devastated area in the, the Samar, the Leyte region of the Philippines. And we went to the city of Tacloban. We went to a place called Barangay Anibong 67. This is one of the hardest hit areas of the storm. Like it's, it was totally wrecked. Like getting into this, this storm, this post-storm area, was, wow. You see the aftermath everywhere. Like signs were busted, windows were busted, rubble, debris everywhere. The water is still stagnant and really, really stunk. There's still a lot of bodies buried in the rubble. A lot of relief workers and stuff down there. And we decided to set up a solar-powered Christmas tree at this one tree that was in the middle of the wreckage. So the news crews came down and me and one of these locals, we climbed up the tree and we set up all these lights and I had a battery pack and a little solar panel and inverter. It was a really cool thing to see. That really made those people's Christmas. A lot of the, we gave toys to the kids and all this kind of stuff. And then I remember I called my dad up and I told him what I'd done. He's like, son, you're more of a man than I'll ever be. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm sorry for the things that happened. It wasn't my, it wasn't my intention to hurt you. I'm just, I'm sick and I have problems. It's like, thank you for calling me and still talking to me after all this, because you're the only one who cares. I got to go now. I'll see you later. And he hung the phone up. And so I think it was about two days after that happened. I'd gotten back to the city and I'd gotten back to work. And then I remember I got a phone call when I was in my office. It was a Monday morning. Working on projects and my computers, running away on a keyboard, and phone rings, pick it up. My sister's there. She's like, Our your father's been found in his apartment with a gunshot wound to his head. And this is days after Christmas. So I remember New Year's Eve 2014, going, in, going into 14, 13, I was on a plane having to buy an emergency ticket and fly all the way across the world to sort out this mess where my dad had apparently committed suicide blown his brains out in his apartment so that was a real that was a real ball buster to say the least that was uh wow that was yeah. a hard thing that was a hard pill to swallow so yes. i had to go over there and sort out all the mess and go in his apartment and see the bullet hole in the tv and the blood splatter on the floor and all that the chalk outline and all that kind of stuff and that was really hard for me to deal with to go into place where my father had actually killed himself to see where it happened and the aftermath of the event. So I don't know. I mean, I think for the longest time it did really scar me, but right now I've kind of developed a perspective of, you know, life is an experience. Mm. It's all it really is in an experience. And if yeah. we get so over attached to the stories of it, mm. then these things have an ability to drag us into it when they loop in our heads over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I mean, God. And, and I'd, I'd have every reason to be fucked up, right? That's all the justification in the world. There it is. You know, I went in, my father committed suicide, my mother died, I had a fucked up childhood. So that gave me every right to fall apart. And that's exactly what I did because I held on to my narrative. So when I got back in 2014, when I got into a really toxic you know, pain body relationship, I guess, where there's another person who was also in pain from her own trauma in life. And I had my own trauma and we kind of just gravitated to each other and 
tried to to lick each other's wounds per se, and that was also a very bad idea. Both of us were emotionally a wreck, and it was very toxic and all that. And that led to me developing a lot of substance abuse issues because I was hanging on to this narrative, right? I had all the justifications in mind why I should be able to smoke weed every single day and get drunk and binge on psychedelics and do whatever kind of drugs I want because I'm fucked up and this happens to me and it's my God-given right. You don't know what it feels like. And I got so defensive about it. And I remember, um, yeah, this is in 2015. You know, me and my ex-girlfriend were getting a lot of arguments, a lot of, a lot of very toxic habits I had. I was very needy. I was very controlling. I was very... I always needed attention all the time. I always needed to be the center of her attention. Um, and I was very kind of just like, also in a way I didn't value myself. So I, I put up with a lot of things most people shouldn't, I guess. It's just the basic sum of it was a very toxic kind of union. I think in one of my drug binges, she was really wanting me to get help and start dealing with problems in a better way and I remember I came home after binging on alcohol and psychedelics and there was an argument waiting for me and I walked in the door and that's when I don't know some voice in my head just told me I'll show you you want me to deal with my emotions I got a better way so I pulled my hunting knife out and I just started to run it down the side of my neck and my whole I was so twisted and fucked up that it's like if you're gonna push me to deal with my emotions when I don't want to I'm going to make you watch me die just so you're fucked up for life. And that's how twisted I was in the head. Mm. And so I started to cut into my neck and blood is everywhere. And luckily she threw me into the wall. Like there's a giant hole in the wall. And she threw me into the wall to stop me. She had this crazy breakdown and all this. And that was the time I was like, you know, you didn't talk to somebody because this is, this is kind of going too far. Yeah. And that's when... That's when I finally was able to get over this complex of, you know, nothing's wrong, I'll handle it. Then that turns into this whole justification of the story, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure a lot of people that have had trauma or experience, we have our own self-medicating coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. What, what a story. Um, so... Um, yeah, what was I gonna say? So, so how old was your dad when um, when he when 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 he, when he committed suicide? He was seventy nine. Seventy nine. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I just find, I find, that, find that interesting. It feels feels um, doesn't feel like that's a. It feels like it's an it's a old age to um. Uh, just, it's not, not normally that age, is it, that, that people tend to, to do things like that, I suppose it just... You'd be surprised, actually. Oh, really? There's a lot of old people that, yeah, because once their bodies start, like, if you're, for example, in mind, if you're a powerful, empowered person where you like to travel, you like to move, you like to walk, you like to see things, and all of a sudden your body gets old and you can't go anywhere, and you can't do anything, and your family is alienating you, and you're just alone all the time in an apartment, and you're having financial problems and that whole course of action of like, what am I here for? There's no motivation anymore, you know? Mm. There's nothing to look forward to. 
And a lot of people, more than we think, a lot of old people that are facing a lot of physical and financial problems might do tunes of suicide. Yeah. I mean, so um, with regards to the military, I mean, um, was there any, is there any good skills and things that it taught you that kind of, that sort of helped you to sort of deal with, with life and, and, and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say the flip side of the emotional programming is you become extremely resourceful mm. because you have to learn to survive and you have to learn to get out of situations in a tactical, logical manner. Yeah. You become extremely responsible. And the whole idea of extreme accountability is present because if you make a mistake, it can cost you your life or someone else their life. So your attention to detail is very high and your sense of responsibility is very, very high. And it also, it makes you a very good leader and a good follower mm. because it really gets you kind of detached from the ego and just see things from a mission-based perspective. Mm. Like if I have to, let's say for example, you and I are working on a project and you have a role and I have a role, I wouldn't necessarily like want to go out outside of my role and try to step on your toes just for the sake of making myself look good because we're both focused on getting something done yeah. and i think what i noticed the counterpart with people who aren't in the military is the ego gets in the way a lot there's a lot of sensitivity yeah. and i think with the military and i think also i think the biggest benefit is it exposed me to the world i was able to go to a lot of different places and see different things mm -hmm. and see that you know the narrative that we see in america where everyone just you know they go to the jobs and they go home and they're parked in front of the tv for x amount of hours per day Versus actually going out and living and experiencing, you know, going to Sudabay Creek or Rota, Spain, or going to Lisbon, Portugal, or being able to go to Africa to see how the people live there. It really opens your perspective in life and allows you to see, like, you know, if you look at the standard of life in a developed country versus a place you've been, you'd understand the simple things that people take for granted and don't appreciate yeah. versus things that people in these other countries would actually kill for. They would, they yeah. would really appreciate the things that Americans take totally for granted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, yeah, I just want to go back to a little bit, just when you talked about the, um, the sort of attachment and, the, and the, 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 the sort of excuses we give ourselves to say, oh, well, this terrible yeah. thing happened to me. And, um, and then you kind of say, well, you know, that gives me the right to, to do all this stuff. And what, what um, yeah. one, one, it'd be good to, to hear a bit more about, about that. And also it'd be, and also it'd be good to hear a bit more about um, how, uh, because I think certainly I will, and, and possibly a lot of my listeners uh, tend to, tend to whip yourself or will whip ourselves because um, we're feeling quite terrible about, uh, something that's happening to us and uh, hearing stories like this on the one hand makes us feel better because it because it because it thinks well you know um, if someone can let go of a, of, a, of a victim script like that so well you know then I can do it but then when you can't you start whipping yourself and saying well my pain's not as worthy as his pain kind of thing so it'd be good just to touch on all of that really if you could and give your thoughts on that sure this is something I really specialize in it's I kind of look at things in terms of music right Let's say that you're an instrument, or you're a guitar, and someone is really jamming out on you and they rocked out so hard you came out of tune. Does it necessarily mean that you're a broken guitar? No, you still have a shape, you still have you know, rods, there's still ways to play you, you just have to retune yourself. 
So when life comes around and knocks us with experiences and it brings us out of tune to our holistic vibration, if we get so caught up in the story of our minds, our minds get in the way, especially if you're smart. If you're smart, your mind will create so many justifications to keep itself in a place where it's comfortable that'll actually be toxic for you, but your mind is going to give you a million reasons why it's okay and it's good and it's all right to feel this way and to do these things, even though everyone else around you, and it's perfectly obvious that this is not good for you. So what I like to do is not really look at things in terms of the mind, but in terms of the energy, the emotion, the vibration, the thought, and the feeling. If you deal directly with the DNA of these things, then those are the energies that drive behavior. For example, if you feel a feeling of love and peace inside, you'll behave accordingly. It means you're not going to be screaming at people and cursing in traffic. You're not going to be, you know, flipping people the bird and yelling at people. You're not going to be kicking over trash cans or doing anything an angry person would do. You would be a very patient person. You'd be very receptive. You'd be easy to talk to and you'd have good relationships in your life. Your entire life would be shaped around that energy because that's the DNA of your behavior. Right? Yeah. So it's more of the idea of like, we don't want to get caught up in the story because you're going to fight a losing battle in the mind. The ego mind is not your friend. It's, its job is to just be in control in the driver's seat as much as it can because it's only here for a limited time. You know, if we look at things in the terms of ego and soul, right? Our soul is timeless. It can go through millions and billions of incarnations throughout time. But our ego, our small little, you know, Rob Green or Spencer Blackaller, we're only here for maybe about 100 years if we're lucky. So this ego is like, ooh, me, 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 me. I need to be first. I need to have my opinion. I need to be in the driver's seat. I need to be in control. And it just wants to do this all the time. It's like the 16-year-old kid with a license. Dad, let me drive, let me drive, let me drive. Even though I'm running over mailboxes and I'm rear-ending people and I can't parallel park and I scratch the car, I'm still I'm the best driver on the planet in my own head. Mm-hmm. So I learned to separate the two because, you know, you look at the idea of addiction. Like my story used to be, okay, I had all these bad experiences in life. You know, my mom died, I was abused, my father killed himself, so therefore... My self-medication coping mechanism is something that I understand because I've been through this pain and you haven't. Even though you see me hacking my brains out, you know, coughing because I'm smoking so much or waking up with hangovers or missing days of work or having erratic mood swings and messing up business deals or having fights with my girlfriend three nights a week, that's totally a side effect of it and you don't understand what could be good for me at all because you're not me. And that was my biggest defense mechanism, right? And I think a lot of people fall into this narrative, right? But the thing is, even though you're right, it doesn't mean that you're winning. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because you might be right in the justification sense of like, okay, A plus B equals C and this makes sense. Is it making your life better and is it making you happy? Most times, no. Most time, the behavior pattern, the answer, if you look at it, you get the mind out of the way and you look directly into the heart of it, into the energy of it, the energy is very negative. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, why do I need to smoke weed every single day? Why can't I just be happy within my own energy? Why? Because I feel like shit inside. That's why. That's the simple reason. Yeah. And so if I work on this whole idea of not feeling like shit inside and I feel good inside, then I don't need to take myself out of this vibration because I'm already in it. 
And I think this is what a lot of people need to realize that if you're going to try to fight the ego mind in its, in its playing field, you're going to lose, especially if you're smart because smart people have all the means that like they have 20, your ego mind has like 20 counters for every, it's like 20 steps ahead of you. Yeah. It's like, you know, people like, for example, you probably know someone where, okay, I need to lose weight. And so I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to start this exercise routine. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're going to do all this research on why going to the gym is bad for you. And it can cause all these kind of injuries and all these statistics and reports. So I better not go to the gym. And then all of a sudden, you know, going on a diet is bad for you because this and this and this. So I don't have to go on a diet now. So you, when you fight the mind in its playing field, it's usually going to the most dominant habit and energy is always going to stay there. So the only way to beat it is you go into the feeling and go into the heart of it. And that takes work and that takes courage and it takes guts and it's, it takes facing some ugly feelings. But when you're able to do that in a healthy way, you start to rewrite the DNA of your holistic vibration. And this is something that will basically cause the mind to change automatically because the mind will have to follow the vibration. It's the greater energy. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you've been in a feeling where you like, say if you're practicing meditation, you come out of meditation, you feel a sense of peace of mind, your behavior is going to be totally different than if you were sitting in traffic for three hours or people are honking at you after you got off an argument with your, you know, with your girlfriend or wife or whoever it is, you know, that's going to be a totally different person for that moment in time. Yeah. Because our, our holistic vibration changes, therefore our behaviors change. So this whole idea of who you are, it really depends on your holistic vibration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, that's a great way of, and, and yeah, thinking of it in terms of energy and vibration instead of, you know, um, instead of uh, I, I, I am or I want is, um, is a good is a good way. So, so what, what would you say to people that... Um, that you know that because in my my mind um you know uh, feelings are feelings right so uh, you, if, if they're some people will avoid them because they feel that the like the the the, the rhetoric you're saying about you know uh, don't show them and it's like they've, they've got this uh, imagination that what they're feeling isn't actually that serious so why would they talk to someone about you know this this feeling when there's a lot of other people in the world that are going out and going to work and you know, and not bothered about this feeling kind of thing. So, so it ends up being a double, almost like a double, a double attack on yourself, really, doesn't it? You know? Yeah, I would say that, you know, whatever your ego mind is telling you, it's usually wrong for your heart. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. the ego mind is the one that follows cultural norms, right? I don't want to be looked at as a weirdo, so I'm not going to say this thing, and I'm going to find all these bases of comparison. Ooh, this guy's problem is worse than mine. So on the assumption that makes mine go away. No, yeah. like you remember, like, for example, like my dad used to tell me, oh, there's starving kids in Africa. So you should be happy that you have a house. Like, okay, yeah, I'm happy. I'm not starving, but it doesn't solve the fact that my house is totally a toxic environment. Yeah. It doesn't solve the fact that you come home drunk and you beat the shit out of me. Like kid in Africa doesn't know anything about that. And his problems being worse than mine doesn't solve mine. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you take this up on an adult level, if you're feeling a negative way inside and you're just operating off of the mind and you're constantly avoiding your feelings, which I think in the UK where you're at, that's something that's taught, that's taught culturally to people is that you don't talk about your feelings. 
you don't really want to get too deep. You don't want to expose vulnerability. You don't want to seem like you don't have it all together. Well, the truth is, this is a way that we've been psychologically conditioned by society to, be, to behave and to perform in a way that benefits only the interests of the people that are really in charge. Because if everyone is really in touch with themselves and everyone is really living from the heart, would you go to a job that you hate every day? No. No. If you, people are really true to themselves, would I go sit and do 20 hours of overtime per week just so I can get that promotion? No, I would be doing something that I really love and enjoy. I wouldn't be doing something to avoid shame or avoid judgment, right? Would I be going out and buying a brand new Mercedes Benz and working my tail off for it mm. if my real passion was, say, playing, playing drums? Maybe deep down inside, I really want a drum set and I don't want to be working in an office with a suit and tie. But because my you know, wife, you know, husband, kids, whoever, your coworkers, boss, people I don't even know that are looking at me and judging me for not having a nice car and I'm not in touch with myself, the dominant energies from the outside are taking over my vibration. So I'm acting in accordance with that. So I'm not being true to myself. And a lot of people don't. So I would say, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel like you shouldn't be talking about your feelings and avoiding them, the longer you avoid them, the more that they're just going to grow and grow and grow to a point you're going to get to a crisis in life. And eventually, once you get to that point, there's going to be a serious amount of damage control that has to be done to keep you from going over a red line. So rather than waiting for those things to get to that point, just be real with yourself and focus your attention on your heart and how you feel. Now, if you're not emotionally intelligent, which most people aren't, in the United States where I live, where I grew up in my culture, and I'm pretty sure in the same culture in the UK, people aren't, especially men, we're not taught emotional intelligence on how to define emotions, how to process them, how to healthily express them, and how to have an emotional relationship in a healthy way with a person. Mm -hmm. We're kind of taught, like, especially, and I noticed there's this dynamic in relationships where a man is supposed to be the pillar of the family, the provider, and his needs are basically last on the list. Okay, like I have to have, I have, my needs are last, like, okay, first it's the family, so it's the kids, then it's the wife, then it's the job, then it's the in-laws, then it's the parents, then maybe I'm like six or seventh on the list if I'm lucky. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of the times, we, you know, there's a, there's a comedian, I think he's in, the, in America, his name is Chris Rock, and he said a funny and true quote, I like to call it trunny, true and funny means trunny. It's that uh, unconditional love only exists for women and dogs. If you're a man, you're only loved on the condition that you're providing something. As soon as you don't, you're no longer loved and you're replaced and you're humiliated and you're ostracized and you're forgotten about them. I love that. Which, I love that. It's so, it's so it's, powerful. And, and, you know, and, and this is, yeah, this is what, you know, yeah, I just, I, I, I love that. And, and I think um, it relates, you know, similarly to, to what a lot of, what well, certainly what I've been going through um, with with regards to access to my children and, and the family courts, and what a lot of people listening to this are probably going to be going through, you know, the, the sort of just disregard for for a man and his feelings in all of it is, is, is yeah, it's quite staggering really. <laughs> but um, well, it's if you this is the this is the thing. There's a doormat analogy I like to call it. You can't get walked on unless you're laying on the ground. So. Meaning to say that if you are not prioritizing your needs and making that known as a priority in the relationship, no one else will. 
we kind of have this false assumption that because I do this for you, you should do this for me. Or because I think of you in this way, you should return the favor and do it for me. No, the wife doesn't work like that. Especially in, in relationships, especially depending on what culture you're with. So if you're not putting yourself in a position where you are making sure that this is what I need in a relationship and I'm not settling for less, and I'm not just falling into this whole idea because, you know, let's say there's a sexual attraction and the sexual attraction is supposed to just make up for the, the character flaws that we kind of run into in relationships, right? Because what I noticed, like, um, not to be a misogynist, so if there's any female listeners, I'm not saying this to to have any negative, I guess, views against women. But what I've noticed in a lot of relationships with men is if there's an attractive woman and there's a highly sexual energy in the relationship, what men will do is we'll kind of let all the other things that we don't normally like go and we let that go to the wayside as long as we have our sex drive, right? So all these other things that bother us are kind of just going to get skated over. And as long as we're satisfied with our sex drive, we'll kind of just let all this stuff slide. Yeah until it comes to a point of like there's a there's a head-on collision <laughs> yeah. yeah and then when there's a head-on collision because we're so dependent on the sex drug the woman says oh you're raising your voice and you're getting mad about something that i do okay no more sex drug for you and then we're out sleeping on the couch and we're begging for it like little you know disempowered little boys and please mommy come love me again and then we end up folding and caving in and we end up selling out on ourselves because we don't have control over that energy and that energy has control over us. And a lot of the times the biggest toxic trait I noticed in this day and age, especially with dating apps and hookup culture and all this is people don't really get to know each other on a fundamental person to person level. It's just more like a trophy kind of level. Like, okay, she's got the big, nice looking body and a nice looking face and she's, She's this established, this exotic kind of trophy person that I'm interested in, but I'm not really getting to know the DNA of who you are behind the image. Right? That comes later on in the relationship. And a lot of times people find out, you know, men too. You know, maybe a man is a knight in shining armor and he's dressed well and he's a smooth talker like James Bond and he's a, he's a ladies man and a charmer. And he's a, he's a gentleman and he has every button to push and every chord to play to get a woman in bed with them, but once you know time goes on and discovers the true values of a person, a lot of the times, you know, there's a big incongruency. Yeah. There's a big gap in the person-to-person connection. And when the whole sexual attraction energy wears away and you're just stuck with a person, you've already jumped in bed with them a million and one times and there's nothing left to do that you haven't done and that energy has already run its course and you're just stuck with a person, you're like, hey, I don't really like this person. And they're saying, hey, I don't really like you either. We're already, you know, you're already two years in and seven kids deep and you just got to just ride it out until the kids leave and maybe I can part ways peacefully. If not, then we have to go through this ugly separation process, which yeah. I think happens in a lot of cases. So yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. I guess the, Sorry. I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, you know, in terms of relationships, you have to go back to the old ways my this is one nugget of wisdom i learned from my stepmom is that she said always marry your best friend and i was like oh like you know i can't be friends with a person and actually involve them but you know we're in such a rush to get to this stage of this love drug and the hormones and the endorphins and the sexual attraction but 
we don't really want to take the time to really invest in getting to know a person for the DNA of who they are. Can I be with this person and not just jump in bed with them, but can I actually enjoy their company? Can we do things together that we actually need to enjoy and develop a friendship as a best buddy? Yeah. And a lot of times between men and women, that's a very difficult thing, especially if there's an attractive factor, because if the woman's attractive and the man's attractive and they're just hanging out, spending a lot of time together, the rate at which they go across that line is a lot faster in a lot of ways. But I would say that for the young people out there listening to this or people who are single, don't be in a rush. Don't even go with this fake representative you wear. Because a lot of times we, we, we go on a date as a representative. We're not really us. You know, we're yeah. pulling out chairs, we're dressed well, we're talking really nice. You know, we're at a restaurant we don't really want to be at or we're going to some event or some show we're not even interested in. You know, I'd rather, like a lot of guys, I'd rather be at the bar watching the UFC fight than at an opera. But yeah. I'm just doing this because I want to get laid, so I'm going to pretend to be this person that I'm not to get what I want. And so we give a false representative of ourselves. And the same with women, too. So let's drop the act and just be real and get to know each other as people and don't be in a rush to jump in bed. Wait six, seven, eight months. Wait a year. Wait two years. Yeah, the yeah. longer you wait, the better, because by the time you actually cross that line and get connected to a person, you know them and you know that, all right, if I have sex with this person and if I don't have sex with this person, I still love them for them. Mm. And a lot of the times we don't do that in relationships in the modern day. Mm. We love people for what they are, not who they are. And I think this has caused a lot of problems in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. And we, we um, I can resonate with a lot of that as well. We, um, I've, I've uh, sort of seeing a girl at the moment, and um, we are, we've not been together that long. And we, we, she's got two kids uh, from from a previous marriage, and I've got two kids, and and I'm not seeing mine that often. But her, hers, hers are in. She lives in the house with hers, and uh, trying to, um, trying to manage. All the all the shit that's flying about is, is just is just a nightmare. So we we got um, we, we we subscribed to this online uh, parenting course. It's been brilliant, and or not parenting course, a relationship course, and it's kind of like parenting as well. But it's like learning about relationships basically, and and um, yeah, and and we're going through all, all, such such deep stuff, uh, you know, from not, and it's really it has basically made us best friends, and we don't know whether we're going to stick together or not. Probably not. Um, but we, it feels like we're stuck because of the, because of just the way our life situation is and the kids and stuff. But the, um, yeah, the, the, the stuff we learned with regards to this course and largely it was about for me and a lot and then for her really is largely all shame language, like that you, that you pick up from your parents and it's like, you can't even control it. And, and when you start to become aware of it, you're like, you're sort of like, oh my God, you know, I don't even know what I'm, how I'm doing that or why I'm doing that. And then, and then they sort of do the same. And then you just like this unpicking of all this shame language and, and rhetoric that, that you, that you've learned. And, and then you, like you say, then you really start to connect with them and, and actually become friends, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. A lot of the times, you know, like I'm in a relationship now, I've been in a relationship the last three years and my current partner, her and I were friends for almost two and a half years before we even got intimate. And they actually didn't like each other when we met. When we met, we were just kind of like a, I thought this girl was kind of a snob. She thought I was kind of a weirdo. But we, we just talked and we're like, oh, you're kind of interesting. I guess I'll just have conversations with you. Then after a span of two years, that's when it finally 
cross that line into intimacy. So I think the biggest blessing I have now is I'm in a relationship with my best friends. We go trek together in Nepal. We have adventures together. We go scuba diving together. We can talk, we laugh, we joke. And it's not just a physical consumption kind of energy behind the relationship, which a lot of people tend to fall into and later on discover problems, especially now because, you know, with the COVID isolation and lockdowns and all these other kind of things where people are just stuck together, you know, you really have to discover who your partner is. And a lot of people aren't really liking what they're finding. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a yeah, it's a massive subject, isn't it? Really, that I mean, we could go. But uh, what I what I um what I was interested in is that when I sent you the pre um interview questions, you said about um uh, talked about anxiety a bit and and the mm. and, and how that links to uh, well, basically um, how being present um essentially if you the more present you are, the less anxiety you're going to have. Uh, that's the mm. way I understand it from what you're saying, and and I think a lot. Anxiety has certainly been a very common thing for me because just living with the with the form of parental with parental alienation, you're constantly living in a um, in a state of fear, really, because you're you're worrying about uh, what you say to your kids because if they're young, they how they might reinterpret that back to their mother, which will then be you know um, heard, you know, could then be construed to to to, to a way that adults are going to find it, you know, abusive, or you're worrying about what you're saying to the children, or you're worrying about, you know, uh, if they fall over and bump their head. I mean, it's just an endless amount of of, of fear that that they're going to get stripped away from you again if you're not uh, responding in exactly the right way that the mother wants kind of thing. So so that sort of level of anxiety, yeah, and and the presence. Uh, So, yeah, it was just really... Yeah, elaborating on that a bit more and just give me your thoughts on that a bit more, really. Okay, sure. You know, I'm not really sure about that whole situation with having parental alienation because I don't have kids of my own yet. Maybe I will someday soon, hopefully. But what I can tell you is the mind and the mechanics of the mind. Anxiety usually is a form of worry that's based on an imaginary scenario in the future. It's based on a what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, oh my God, this is going to happen. Our mind does all these algebraic equations of all these massive amounts of problems that it creates and it gets stressed out about, even though they haven't actually happened. I'll give you an example of this. You know, one of my friends owns a restaurant here and they're worried about, you know, getting kicked out of the island because of the rent prices. So they were so worried about they're not going to get a discount and they're stressed out about this for weeks. And, you know, one of them started, one of my friends started to lose weight started to take up toxic habit and smoking all this. Then today they found out that nothing has changed and they're fine. So they went and they put themselves through all of this stress for the last two and a half months only to find out that they don't have to move out and they're just going to be exactly where they are. And they created all these problems in their heads. Now I'm not sure, well I am sure that they're not alone in this. That a lot of the times our minds, like I was saying earlier, our ego mind wants to be in the driver's seat and it doesn't want to lose control because it has an agenda to enjoy this experience as much as it can from its perspective. So what it's going to do is it's going to form all these preventative narratives in its mind. It's like the animal when it's related to trauma. Let's say for an animal, like a, like a dog. Let's say a dog usually eats scraps off the table, then one day it eats a bone or eats something it's not supposed to eat, so it kicks it really hard. So because it's been kicked and there's that fear of that experience, anytime it sees someone walking towards it where a leg rises, it automatically thinks it's going to get kicked 
and it runs off and hides. Mm. Our minds do this too as humans, you know, because we might have had a painful, stressful, or traumatic experience, anything that might resemble that presents itself in our reality, then our mind will run off in this corner and it'll run off and retreat and it'll hide and it'll start to, you know, our, our, our lieutenant generals come out with this war plan of all these things we're going to do. Like, oh, this person says this, I'm going to say that. When they do this, I'll say that. And they said this and that. And we have like 50 steps of this imaginary battle scenario planned out and we're already stressed out about it and it hasn't even happened yet, right? Yeah. So and the key to avoiding... Sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, and physiologically to the body, that, that's like it's actually happening, isn't it? Yeah. It's actually happening because it causes a stress response. Mm, yeah. Because what happens is, you know, when we perceive a threat in our brains, before in our, in our primitive days, our threats were like being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or a dinosaur or something like that. So we'd hide in a cave and we'd have a spear ready because we didn't want to be eaten. So our adrenal response to threats is developed over our evolution mm. that anything we perceive as a form of death becomes an adrenalized threat. So the cortisol is kind of the primary motivator. Then the adrenaline kicks things into high gear, the fight or flight mode. So what happens is when we constantly create stress in our mind, our body's releasing stress hormones. It releases cortisol, releases cortisone, it releases neopinephrine into our nervous systems, and it releases adrenaline. When these chemicals are in our bloodstream and in our brain, they actually have a negative effect on our organ function. They have a negative effect on our circulation. They have a negative effect on the immune system. So our overall health suffers because of these hormones being constantly pumped into our body, our body being constantly, constant, uh, under constant threat. So on a physiological level, stress is very toxic. Even in surgeries where they're doing organ transplants and they want to reduce the immune functions of the incoming organ, or the incoming the, the patient who's getting the organ transplant, they'll use synthetic cortisol to weaken the immune system yeah. during surgeries. So that's how real and how powerful this hormone is. And we produce this in massive amounts in our own bodies. So what I would say is anxiety, because this is something I imagine that you're struggling with and that you have to deal with in your life because of the situation you're in. You have to just stop your mind from going on these tangents. Mm. You know, you have to go back into the vibration of love, peace, security, safety, and abundance. Because if you're acting outside of that vibration, then that's what you are going to create in a ripple effect. So example, if you're stressed out about saying the wrong thing to your kid, because you're putting so much energy into that thought, you're more likely to manifest it. Because you're putting that vibration into your mind and your field already by thinking about it so much. Like, oh my God, if I say this, he's going to tell his mom that, his mom's going to say this, and they're going to give me this paper, then I won't see him for a year. And then this overlying energy of fear is not your true vibration. It's not your true vibration you want to be in. So the more that you can retune to your true vibration, vibration of love, a vibration of peace, a vibration of joy, a vibration of security, and act in that vibration, the likelihood of actually saying one of those things that will trip one of those alarms is a lot lower than if you were acting in a state of fear. Beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. just a matter of, okay, how do I get the mind back into the center? Because we have to train the mind to 
not go on these thought tangents, to not run off in the future direction. And the best way to do that is to bring the mind into the present moment. Now, how do you do that? How do you bring the mind into the present moment? You bring the mind into the body. Yeah. This is the practice of yoga. Mm -hmm. The practice of yoga is very, very good for this. Not as a workout routine where you're going to the gym to look better and wearing tight pants like a gymnast and all this other stuff. When you use yoga as a spiritual discipline for internal work, it's something I just want to throw out there and explain because this is what I do. I teach the eight limbs of yoga as a spiritual way of recovering from trauma and reshaping behaviors. The first limb of yoga is called your yama or your conduct in society so you do not create bad karma. Because in the Hindu philosophy, the law of karma is if you do something outwardly, an outward action to other people and has a negative effect, the negative effect will come to you. So if you steal, you'll be stolen from. If you lie, you'll be lied to, all these other things. The next one is your niyama. Your niyama means how you're going to behave as your standards of yourself. How do I keep myself in line with the highest vibration? And one of those, one of those concepts is brahmacharya. So that's, that's respecting the sexual energy. It's socha, it's cleanliness, it's honesty, it's studying the, the, right, the, the Vedic scriptures or to put the right content into your minds, right? Once you're doing those two things, then you move to asana the yoga postures, what the purpose of asana does is it brings your mind into your body. That's how you get present. Because when you're doing a yoga pose or a movement, you're not thinking about all these things. Your mind doesn't have the energy to think and worry about 20 situations in the future and be present in the body. It cannot do it. It has to be present in the body because the body is the most immediate need of attention. If I'm doing a yoga pose where I have to focus my balance, I can't let my mind wander. It's not going to work. My mind naturally will be right here in the post. Mm. So you go through these postures for two reasons. First reason is because it brings your mind into the body. Right? Second reason is it relieves tension so you can sit still in meditation. Because the primary purpose of yoga is to unite you back to a higher energy or retune your vibration to a higher energy. So once you do asana, then you move into pramayana. Now pramayana is primarily controlling the prana in the body, the energy, the life force energy, through the vehicle of breath. And you do this to relieve tension in your, in your internal organs, in your internal energy fields. And I've developed a practice where I can actually purge cortisol from my body. Because here's the funny thing about cortisol. Cortisol mucosifies and it becomes acidic after the event. Let's say you have a stressful day, right? And you have all this cortisol release and you're on edge and you're all anxious. If you calm down mentally, it doesn't mean that those chemical toxins have left the body. What happens is that cortisol accumulates in your lymphatic system. Now think about this. When you cry, right? You see someone crying. There's usually a ton of snot that comes out. Like if your kid's crying or a woman's crying or a man's crying, eh, then you have to give them a tissue. They need to blow their nose. Why is there so much mucus coming out when you cry? Have you ever thought about that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, no. I did that. I did, uh... I, 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 I've done a lot of Kundalini in my time and um, mm -hmm. my um, teacher at the time used to say whenever, whenever she took me to a space of crying, she would say, she'd make me blow my nose and say, get it all out, get it all out. And I just yeah. assumed it was some kind of energy that I needed to get out or something, you know. But... Well, it, on a chemical level, if you study the biology of this, cortisol actually is an acidic hormone. And in order for it to not cause a severe disruption in your body's pH, it stores in the lymphatic system. So when you have an emotional release, 
energetically, the cortisol comes out as a form of mucus. Mm. Wow. Wow. So on a daily basis, I do yoga postures and breathing exercise to purge this cortisol hormones out of my body. And usually I get a ton of mucus coming out. I can fill a cup up, sometimes twice a day, depending on how stressed I am. So it turns my chemical vibration back to serotonin and dopamine. Okay, so that's one of the benefits of doing pramayana is because it cleans out your internal body. Like if you're doing kundalini and kriya, kriya is also related to karma. A lot of people don't know this, okay? Karma is an outward action. Kriya means inward action. So I'm doing something to internally affect my body and my energetic state. Okay? From pramayana, then you move into a state called pratyahara. Now pratyahara means withdrawal from the senses. Because you've been present in the body, because you've done pranayama to clean out the chemical facilities of the body, then you become into a state of mind where you're not just attached to this human sense organs. You're not just attached to the human sense of touch, taste, hear, you know, see, smell. You're becoming into the sense of the Atman or the higher self. And this is where you're in the perspective of the observer, where you're in this perspective of the consciousness of the soul. This is a very good place to do internal work from because the vibration is totally different. This is the place that connects you to divinity. Now, the next stage after Pratyahara is called Dhyana. Now, Dhyana means focus. Okay? Unhindered focus because you're not so much attached to your senses and your ego. Your mind can be totally still and you can reside in another consciousness. Then from dhyana, it's called dharani. Dharani means deep meditation. This is all happening almost all at once. When you're in deep meditation in this still state, then eventually after that, you reach a moment of samadhi. And samadhi can be described as enlightenment. Or samadhi, in terms of a short moment, can be a union with source consciousness, where you've totally united with the vibration of source. Now, if you look at this from a trauma-based perspective of correcting behaviors, if you try to reattune your body to this energy through this process, the mind has no room to get in the way. It doesn't even get a foot in the door. It doesn't stand a chance. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a candle against an ocean. It's one little drop of water, it's, it's gonna go out. So this is a great way to deal with these things like anxiety, trauma, depression, PTSD. Like this is the path that I've went on to help correct all of my behaviors and change who I am and recover from PTSD in a way where, you know, I'm not totally out of the woods where it doesn't affect me. There are things that still do affect me, but I can manage it a whole lot better than before. And I don't have any addictions anymore. I've been sober. I've been clean. I'm not addicted to substances. I don't need to take some kind of substance in to feel good. I can be totally still relaxed and happy in my own energy. And I'm not haunted by all of these negative memories from the past and childhood. And I'm in a place in life where I'm genuinely happy to be who I am. And I feel loved and I feel loved from people around me. I feel loved from, from within. And that's the most important thing anyone can feel if they're looking to recover from these things. So if you're listening to this and you're interested, I obviously can help you out with this because this is what I specialize in. But I highly recommend you look at the idea of reattuning your vibration with a higher energy, like a guitar. You know, you take out the tuner and you set it to a tone, then you match it. Yeah. yeah. Rather than just trying to pluck away at strings randomly yourself without having a base of reference, you're going to get lost. You, know, you go to the doctor, what are they going to do? They're going to pump you with antidepressants. Yeah. 
I'm going to say, you're going to take this, that, and this and that, and come see me next week. And we're going to do some kind of journaling exercise, maybe, or we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Then you're going to stick you on medications again, and you're going to come back, and I'm going to milk as much money as I can out of you. Then you're going to bill it to your insurance. And then maybe after a few years, you might see some results. Maybe you won't. Now, yeah. if I can take my situation as crazy as it is, I've been through a whirlwind of shit in my life, and I can come out of the end okay enough to be able to teach other people how to be okay, then whatever you're going through, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it'll work for you as well. I promise. Oh, wow. I mean, it's inspirational. I mean, it's, I'm just so grateful to have you here talking like this and, and, you know, just, yeah. And yeah, it's very, it's very inspirational. And for anyone listening that um, is, is saying, Oh, I can't, can't sit still and can't do meditate. I can't stop my, can't meditate properly because my, my thoughts of you know going mad and I, you know it's just not something I'm good at or nothing I can do. I mean, they're all, if they're here now listening to us, then they've obviously got a certain amount of attention to, to to this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I wondered if you've got any sort of like small five-minute quick live examples or something we could do quickly just to try and you know, sure, it's very easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I actually teach these uh, exercises on my website. I have a free three-part video series and I do weekly guided meditation sessions To This is why karma yoga. So anyone who wants to jump on to learn and go through a meditation process, I do. So if your mind isn't still, they call it mara or even in uh, some cultures, they call it the monkey mind because it's jumping around, right? And the more time that we spend on these, because most every, a lot of people are on these all day long, right? Yeah. Well, okay. And you're in this environment, in this digital world where your attention is bouncing all over the place. By the time you put it down, your mind is still in this bouncing all over the place state. So a good way to center yourself is traditionally, if you follow the yoga discipline, the third limb is doing asana. So being present in the body. So I'll take you through a quick routine that I do. If you just want to do a meditation and you want to still your mind, start to do some stretches first. So you can bring your hands together. You can bring your wrist outward and you can do some stretches here. So pulling the wrist out, dropping the head down and just settling into the body, taking a deep breath in and feeling your body. So this is supposed to be done slowly so you can develop a relationship with your body. Just staying here, taking a deep, deep breath in, then deep breaths out, feeling each inch of it. And from there, we can raise our hands and come up, bring this above the head Stretch out forward, and we'll just stay here for just a moment, taking a deep breath in. The next Being still, keeping your eyes closed, feeling the tension within the body. A lot of it accumulates in our hands because we're holding a radioactive device all day long. Another simple exercise to do is the neck too, because a lot of our energy gets caught in the back of our heads, because a lot of us are looking down a lot. So we can just do a simple exercise to move our neck around. Just go up and down like we're saying yes. So just do about 10 times. And then we can shake our heads no. So in the process of just doing these three movements, were you thinking about anything else but your body? Probably not. No, no. 
that's the way it's supposed to work. Now, ideally, before you do meditation, you'll do 35 to 40 minutes, even an hour of asana. So if you're going to try to meditate, do you, I mean, there's a ton of resources online where you can teach, there's all sorts of yoga videos, all this. Go through something simple, maybe 15, 20 minutes of asana where you're in your body first. Do that whole posture of the series because there's tons of people who are really good at teaching all these different things. Do the asana, that'll get you present in the body. Then you can meditate and your mind will be still because I just did this as a sample for you, but in the process of just stretching your hands and moving your neck around, your mind is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. 100% there. Yeah. I'll teach you one exercise you can use if you want to be fully present with yourself and raise your vibration and kind of clear out your, your thoughts, okay? Mm -hmm. This exercise is called Brahmadi breath. I like to do this anytime that I feel kind of stressed out or I feel like I need to re-up my bration and I just want to be in tune with myself. So what you can do is you're going to put your tongue on the roof of your mouth like this. Mm -hmm. Close your mouth. Now slightly relax your jaw. So your jaw is not really scrunching together. It's just kind of hanging out with your mouth closed, tongue on the roof of your mouth. Take a deep breath in your throat. Then as you exhale, I want you to push that air up your tongue and imagine it going into your head. You should feel a warm tingling sensation as you do this with your eyes closed. Do you feel that? When that breath is moving into your head? Yeah? Mm, yeah. Okay. From there, I want you to take your two finger, your index and your pointer finger. And these two fingers like this and just slightly cover your eyes. Yeah, just like that. Now. With the tongue in the roof of the mouth, take a deep breath in. Then as we exhale, we're going to see you saying the word om, but in our own throats. So inhale, then exhale. Again, take a deep breath in. Tongue on the roof of the mouth, exhale and saying om, but in your throat. Inhale. Two more to get deeper then. Last one, deep breath in. Slowly lower your hands, keeping your eyes closed, staying present, staying focused on the vibrations you feel inside. Take a deep breath in, we'll do one more. And exhale. these vibrations to fill your entire body allow it to fill your entire being imagine every cell vibrating with vibrant white light i feel a really deep sense of calm doing this. usually you would do this with your ears plugged 
I had to get you to listen. How are you feeling, Spencer? Good. Feeling good. Yeah. So yeah. usually you'll do that with ears plugged, but I needed you to listen. So you'll do it about anywhere from 10 to 15, sometimes even 20 times. You do it nice, slow breaths. This will really up your vibration and get you present in the moment. It's another uh, warm-up exercise you can do prior to meditation because it stimulates your central nervous system and all of these junk thoughts of the mind all goes away and your mind is just present in the vibration, as you can, you can wow. tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It's good, yeah, it's powerful. And, um, yeah, um, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. That was amazing. And... Uh, uh, if you had one moment left to, to send a message of love, um, and that that moment was now, um, was it, you know, who would you address and what would you say? I would address every single living being on the planet, that we are all connected. We are all part of the same whole. We are all drops in the same ocean. And the more that we can see that, and the more that we can be attuned to being the ocean itself, and the more that we can identify being part of this ocean of consciousness, then we can solve a lot of the problems in the world in our own lives by just reattuning our vibration to the vibration of the greater consciousness. You know, this greater consciousness that we're a part of, it created everything, it created universes. So in comparison to all of your human limitations, your excuses, your doubts, your, your limiting beliefs, all of these things that you believe wrong with you, what has a greater power? Obviously, you can't, it doesn't stand a chance. You're, all of your, your little human stuff doesn't stand a chance against this energy. So wouldn't it be a better idea to try to live in harmony with this energy rather than just getting caught in our own little tiny little shot glass of an ego? So we need to step out of our egos and more into this greater consciousness to realize that we are all united. We are all connected. And we're all connected to something that is much greater than us, but is also a part of us. And the more that we can see that, and the more that we can use these technologies, these technologies were gifts from the creator that were given to us in di through different cultures, thousands and thousands of years ago. The greatest technologies around still to this day. If we can use this ancient knowledge as a way to reattune our vibration to that frequency, and retune ourselves into that consciousness, then a lot of these problems we're having in our heads and in our lives and everything related to our little tiny eggshell of an ego is all going to just wash away. I guarantee it. Because if it works for me, how fucked up and crazy my story is, it definitely can work for you. That's beautiful. Beautiful. And, and so to, to tell, tell, tell us how everyone can get in contact with you and, and what's the best way to get in contact with you. Um, well, I have me and my girlfriend, Robin, we have a yoga retreat company. We do yoga retreats in Bali. We do yoga retreats in the Philippines and we were planning to do one in October in Nepal to take people um, on a trekking adventure in the Annapurna circuit or doing yoga and, and Qigong. Um, for now, we're not really sure about the travel situation. So I do have online courses. I have an online course called Raising Your Holistic Vibration, where I go through a series of exercises you can do in a systematic way to do exactly that, to raise your holistic vibration. My website is greenearthwellness.online. So it's www.greenearthwellness.online. And from there, I also have a free three-part video series where I can teach you some of these exercises like 
I just taught you, Spencer. There's a couple more in there. So you register your email address there. You can get a three-part video series. And these are techniques you can use anytime. I also do weekly guided meditation sessions. I think that's how you found me, actually. You got invited to one of my events. So if you want to come online and do practice a bit of guided meditation to get your feet wet to see how it works, I'll be happy to do that. I do that on a weekly basis as well. And if you want to get in touch for a more detailed coaching program where you really want to go fully in and transform yourself, I also offer those services as well. So this is my way of giving back and sharing what I've learned on my journey to people who may need a bit of help and a bit of guidance from someone who's, who's been along a rough patch and made it out because if yeah. I can do it, I'm definitely sure you can too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I'm just so grateful for, for you telling your story and giving this message and, and all the work you're doing now is, um, yeah, it's brilliant and it's inspiring. So thank you so much for, for your time and, and um, yeah, and yeah, hopefully um, healing lots of people. Um, I'm going to get this out to as many people as I can. So uh, yeah, it's, a great, it's been a great interview. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and I wish you the best in your path to healing. Please keep your mind more present and you got to catch it. Hey, yeah. The monkey jump on the branch, keep him on the leash. Say, hey, hey, no, 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 no. The monkey might not going to go in that direction. I'm staying present. I'm staying right here. And I'm keeping myself in this vibration of love, peace, and security. And I'm acting and living in this vibration as much as I can. And the more that you do that, the more that that thing will manifest in your life. And who knows, maybe the situation that you have with your, with your children can totally turn around and change by changing your own internal vibration first. Yeah, yeah. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's a great place to leave it. And um, I've really enjoyed myself yeah, And Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get a chance to catch up again soon. Yeah, yeah definitely. Great. Thank you.